Welcome back to uh, the second session. My name is John Iskander and I am the chair of area studies at the State Department's Foreign Service Institute. Um, delighted to be here thanks to John Duke Anthony and to the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations for the kind invitation. Uh, very much looking forward to the panel uh, today. The uh, panel is, is one that I think uh, you will agree combines many of the most pressing issues uh, facing our region, some of the most immediate uh, issues. Uh, the, the general title is Geopolitical Dynamics of Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Iran. It's hard to think of uh, a more dynamic and fractious uh, part of this greater region uh, and, and a part that is, of course, draws a lot of our attention uh, these days. So it's, uh, I think, a very important, very timely panel. The uh, obvious issues that we're talking about here in Washington, issues related to the negotiations with Iran and Iran's nuclear file, issues related to Syria, the conflict in Syria, how that could be resolved, what the U.S. role in that might be. These are things that are going to be coming up throughout the panel, which will touch on the various countries of, that, are, that are mentioned in the title. We're going to start off with Iraq with Dr. Judith Yaffe. Uh, we're then going to go on to Syria, uh, to two talks on Syria, different aspects of, of that, Lebanon and Iran. Uh, in each one of these cases, as you can imagine, the, uh, the, the, the great conflicts that are roiling the region uh, play an important role in each one of these talks uh, and, and their approaches. Uh, so we're going to start off with Dr. Judith Yaffe. Uh, she's a Distinguished Research Fellow for the Middle East Institute for uh, National Strategic Studies, uh, adjunct professor at the Elliott School at the George Washington University, and spent 30 years uh, at the Near East South Asia uh, Director for Intelligence, the CIA. Her title is The Road to Baghdad Runs Through Damascus. Dr. Yaffe. Please. Well, I hope you can all see me. I'm kind of the shortest person, and the podium's always too big, but maybe in this case it's better if you can't, and I have something I can hide behind. And I know that John is going to be strict and kick me off in eight minutes. So, to get started, this will be, I hope, brief. I already can't use my, okay. So the title is, looking at Syria, Iraq, and Iran, the road to Baghdad runs through Damascus. That gives you, I think, a kind of an idea of where I'd like to go with this. Um, I want to start, though, by just setting a little context here. And I thank Ambassador Gnay, my colleague at GW, for working on this uh, with and for me. And that's what I call a short guide to the perplexed in the region. If you thought you were confused, wait till I finish. And there will be a test following. So think about this. Iran is backing Assad. The Gulf states are against Assad. Assad is against the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood and Obama are against General Sisi. But the Gulf states are pro-Sisi, which means they're against the Muslim Brotherhood. You still with me? Good. Iran is pro-Hamas, but Hamas is backing the Muslim Brotherhood. Obama is backing the Muslim Brotherhood. Yet Hamas is against the United States. The Gulf states are pro-US. But Turkey's with the Gulf states against Assad, I think. 
uh, and Turkey's pro-Muslim brotherhood against Sisi. Oh yeah, and he's, remember, backed by the Gulf states? Well, I hope you followed all that, because I'm going to give you a test now to see if you could tell me who loves whom and who will do whom in. And why do I start that way? Because if you want to see what's going on, and what, depending on what your vision is for any solution in Syria, it has to do with trying to separate out this, how can I describe it, these pieces. Now, um, I was doing some research recently, and I came across a couple quotes that are very interesting. Why did I just lose my script here? Fine. I think you'll remember Henry Kissinger's famous quote from 1974. In the Middle East, one cannot make war without Egypt and cannot make peace without Syria. Well, that still applies, although the good old days of the Cold War were so much easier. Patrick Seale in The Struggle for Syria wrote, whoever controlled Syria and or enjoyed her special friendship could isolate what, the other Arab states and need bow to no other combination of Arab states. And then I found a quote, and I thank again a colleague of mine who's working on a project on, on change in Iran with me who wrote, found a quote by Rouhani in September of this year, in which he says, in a world where global politics is no longer a zero-sum game, it is, or should be, counterintuitive to pursue one's interests without considering the interests of others. We must join hands to constructively work toward national dialogue, whether in Syria or Bahrain. Uh-oh, I added another country. Sorry about that. So we have a problem. This is complicated, you bet. And um, what I'd like to do is to talk briefly. I have three questions. I think I might get to them more or less. Uh, who is at risk from an imploding or exploding Syria? I'm not going to talk about Syria internal, but this is the impact on the neighborhood. What are the options and the strategies for these neighbors that I'm looking at? In this case, we are looking very specially at Iraq and Syria, and not the whole region. Um, and the options include something you, know, you cannot ignore, that's an option always, and you can't accept the status quo, another option. But there's something else which is going on, and I'll again use a quote, you may know who, this one, here's the test question, who talked about heroic flexibility in the past month? Right, treated one, it was Kamenai. <laughs> so I want to explore a little bit what that means. But underlying, oh, my third question, uh, what does it mean for the U.S., for regional stability, and always, always that I keep in the back of my mind as a former intelligence officer who still tries to think intelligently on occasion, what could go wrong with this picture? What could go wrong with these assumptions? Maybe I don't have to answer that, I'll run out of time. So what we have here is my provocative and underlying assumption. You don't have to agree with me, but just think about it for a minute. Uh, and if we start with this road to Baghdad running from Tehran through Damascus or whatever, uh, we have to look at, I think, what Iran wants and what are its tactics. And here, I think Iran, like Syria, has several basic goals. Regime survival is always number one. Number two is to protect national interests, which go uh, wide range from territorial integrity to borders to protecting all kinds of things. Notice I don't mention ideology or religion or sectarian or anything else. And the third one is, I think, recognition of status in the region. 
uh, not recognition of legitimacy. I think uh, everyone has long ago gotten that message. I think I said that here last year as well. Uh, so for those diplomats who haven't quite gotten it yet or those politicians who think we still have some mystical power by denying recognition, forget it. Um, I should say, I guess these are my own personal comments. I'm still working for the US government for another two months. So these are my personal reflections here. Good. Now, um, I do think this, that uh, it's not in Iran's interest to see Syria, and I underline that, to see Syria fail. And it's not in Iran's interest to be excluded from conflict resolution in the region or from much of anything else. They don't want to be isolated, but especially in the region where they sit, it is critically important. So there, one, of the, one of the alternatives, the options, is to broaden one's view of how you resolve the Syrian question. I'll come back to that in the end. Um, but I think everyone, as soon as Iran indicated it was ready to talk, and we indicated we were ready, imagine that for the first time in 30 years, we're both ready at the same time and in the same place, that people are seeing a kind of opening, which may not be the one that the Syrians deny or would desire, but in the end, it may be the one that that for uh, no other reason, including uh, the Syrians defaulting on an ability to solve their own problems, may be what we're left with. I think you know where I'm going on this. So uh, let me get to the question first. Who's at greater risk from the collapse of Syria? I think that is fairly simple. The answer is Iraq. It is not Iran. Uh, it could, uh, Syria could fail. It could collapse. Uh, Syria. Uh, Syria may no longer welcome Iran, but Iran is not going to fail because of that. Will it hurt them? Sure. Will it frustrate ambitions and attitudes and investments? Of course. But the government is not going to fail on this. Iraq, however, is faced, as you, if those of you that heard Ambassador Faley this morning would recognize, and I thought he was already three minutes, quite candid about not trusting the Syrians, not liking Assad, being Ba'athist, uh, doesn't talk much about the, how the government, though, has recognized and supported Assad. But there is a major dilemma that the spillover is threatening to do what nothing else could do, which is to make, bring back or create for the first time a real civil war. Uh, the violence has returned. What will happen? Uh, I think that the Iraqis, and again, much of their experience, especially Mr. Maliki's and others, are based on their real life years in exile, both in Syria and Iran, and neither of which could have been pleasant or comfortable or that one would want to go back to or welcome more in your own country, but there are things one can control and things one cannot. Um, anyway, if you look at the lessons that the Iraqis have had to learn, I think one is trust no one. And that includes Syria, Iran, or anybody else. And the second one is that decisions are made on national interests, not personal interests, which explains in part why it is important for the Iraqis to show some kind of interest, have a vested interest in what happens in Damascus and what succeeds uh, Assad. Uh, and that is a common cause they share with Iran in terms of not wanting to see a, a sectarian, a religiously motivated, a Muslim Brotherhood, a Syrian extremist government there. The goal for both of them is not to see a hostile government, a government in Syria that would be against, be hostile to their interests. Now, there are two tactics I think that the Iranians have to use. And the first one is the one I've talked about, which is heroic flexibility. 
maybe Treat will explain that better, but I think it's an important uh, characteristic. The second is to just look for a second of my remaining two minutes on enduring alliances, because this is the major tactic supporting Iran's strategy. And if you look at the Syrian-Iran alliance, it goes back more than 30 years. It has endured more than any other alliance in the region. And I'll just give you the shorthand reasons why I think that's true. One is because it's been based as these are, this has always been a defensive alliance based on limited objectives, aimed at specific goals, neutralizing Saddam's Iraq, Israel, the United States. Secondly, different priorities. Iran has made clear its priority is the Persian Gulf. Syria does not try to intervene in what is Iran's primary priority. But for Syria, its primary is, is, is the Levant. And uh, it is where it has clashed with Iran there, they have both failed. Third, non-competing ideologies. It's not about ideology. Iran does not try to portray itself as a leader in the pan-Arab movement or Arab nationalism. Syria stays away from leadership of Islamist movements. They're both fearless nationalists. And as I said, they want to ensure that governments hostile to their interests do not come to power in Baghdad or Syria. All of which brings me back to the heroic flexibility, which I can no longer get into. So let me conclude <laughs> with the following. Um, what does it mean for US interests in regional stability? I'll put it real simple. If you believe that Syria must resolve its differences and solve its own problems, then no outside intervention or assistance uh, is going to work. And the Syrians are very proud, very nationalistic, perhaps more so than any of the other Arabs. That's my personal observation. But they, like Iran, also are very opposed to any, any indication of foreign intervention, uh, foreigners telling them what to do, where to do it, and how to do it. The second thing, though, you have to think about is uh, if you believe Syrian differences are irreconcilable, civil war will go on forever, killing will go on forever, civil society is destroyed, and the spillover will only lead to a very dangerous conclusions. Then I think you have to think about creating what I'll call what the new quartet, if you want. Uh, and that's where we come back to what's happening between the US and Iran and a willingness to talk. And those people who like to see opportunity in anything, do we go into a grand bazaar strategy? I've never thought that that would work. But maybe I'm, I'm behind the times. And maybe there are so many interests on the table that we have, and the Iranians have said this, to get beyond just the issue, just the issue of the nuclear issue. But Syria is there. Can you solve Syria without Iran and Russia and whoever would have any influence on the parties? You bring those to bear who, who have influence to bring to bear together and see what can be done. Um, I don't know of anything else at this point. Last sentence, the end. See, I don't have to answer the last question, which is what could go wrong? And I think the answer is real simple, everything. Thank you very much. <laughs> Whoa. Thank you, Dr. Yaffe. That was very uh, positive and uplifting ending. So thank you. <laughs>
Um, our next speaker is Dr. Bassem Haddad. Uh, Dr. Bassem Haddad is the director of the Middle East Studies Program and teaches in the Department of Public International Affairs at George Mason University, visiting professor at Georgetown University, author of the book Business Networks in Syria. Uh, most notably in recent times, I'll point to the, his uh, founding and editing of Jadalia.com. If you're not following Jadalia.com, you're missing out on a whole host of interesting publications that are coming from academics to general audiences. Strongly recommend that. Thank you for that, Bassam. His title is Syria Lessons Two and a Half Years On. Dr. Bassam Haddad. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me. I, um, I hope you don't regret it after I finish. Um, thank you all for coming. I have a few comments. I will try to read my comments because I want to stay within the uh, eight-minute um, uh, limit. Uh, my title is Syria Lessons After 2.5 Years, and I will start by saying that, uh, as we all know, we have a... Uh, tragedy in Syria that has reached dramatic proportions and with more than 7 million displaced, some say a couple more million actually than that, and more than 100,000 people killed. Anything we might say today will do little to change the situation and I think we should be realistic about that. But it is good at least to look at, um, look back and address what we might have learned after 2.5 years of the uprising in Syria, including on the regional and international relations of the Syrian crisis. Clearly every word I or my colleagues will be uttering today can be contested by anyone uh, and infinitely so. What matters at least analytically is the staying power of some of our analysis. Much of what I will say today will actually not be sexy in the sense that uh, one can say a lot of juicy things about Syria, about uh, contention, about intrigue, about conspiracies, and so on and so forth. Uh, what matters, uh, in my view, is uh, actually to go back and try to find some clarity in this fog that is the discourse on Syria which is why it will sound a bit more basic than I usually um, address and present. I will start with what we have learned about our ignorance. So there are four or five points that I will address. First, we learned that we really did not know much about Syria prior to March 2011. That most of us woke up to Syria only then and tried to fit it and its regime in a template that kept rejecting it. Thus, much of the analysis prior to uh, winter of this year was still betting on the fall of the regime somehow. But the history of modern Syria, especially under the Ba'ath Party, did not start in March 2011, including the atrocities, the brutality, and whatever else that, include, uh, that is, can be included in the uh, legacy of the Ba'ath. Judgments about the developments in the Syrian uprising were too often confined to the past two years at the expense of these legacies, at the expense of the strategic domestic context that had been consolidated for decades, and at the expense of various intricate balances of power that provided stability at the expense of some basic rights in Syria. 
In other words, our analysis continued to be pegged to the daily developments at the expense of the big picture. Until today, we continue to follow the daily developments and make judgments based on those, jettisoning in the process the structure of a four or five decade of history and dynamics. Second, we learned that we also st stopped paying attention to what is going on in Iraq after 2008, even if recently we have become more interested. Partly because it was off mainstream news, partly because of trouble at home in the US, and partly because, well, including you know, not being able to sign on to the uh, website for healthcare, and uh, partly uh, as a result of um, the withdrawal of US troops. Thus, many, of, uh, many are taken aback by the recent encroachment of the Islamic State of Iraq into Syria to form ISIS, Islamic State in Iraq and Cham, or Syria. ISIS, for the record, is considered to be excessive in its policies and behavior by Al-Qaeda and Al-Zawahiri himself, who announced that, the, that ISIS is going a bit too far and uh, considers Jabhat al-Nusra instead to be more moderate and level-headed compared to ISIS. In other words, things in Syria are not well. We have also learned that we were too skeptical of the early critiques of the very early interference of countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, and the United States in the affairs of the opposition and the emerging rebel groups inside Syria. Thus, many are now surprised by the consequences, intended and not intended, of this kind of interference, which in my view has undermined collective action across all um, stripes of the Syrian opposition, inside and outside. In other words, in our efforts to ignore the claims of conspiracy by the anti-imperialist camp, which should be ignored, we also ignored sober analysis altogether about the perils of such interference and the actual interests of the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar in interfering in Syria, as though they were interfering to preserve the well-being of the Syrian people, forgetting the decades in which they supported the brutality of the same dictator, on and off. Note that this is not about how we ignore the creeping radicalization and Islamization of the uprising only, but about how such interference prevented the formation of a truly nationalist opposition, especially outside Syria. Fourth, we learned that the following phrase is not a cliche. The Syrian uprising is complex. That phrase is now considered a cliche, but it is not. Yet we have not yet unearthed all the major layers and dimensions of complexity. Instead, we are letting the events unearth them for us. Thus, we find ourselves focusing on symptoms, Jabhat al-Nusra, ISIS, and the radical Islamist turn, the puzzling trajectory of the FSA, the entire chemical weapons crisis, for instance, are considered to, are, are connected to the fact that the Syrian uprising was always about more than the Syrian uprising. It was always at the intersection of various struggles and delicate balances of power that ruptured a few months into the uprising. These struggles and equilibriums are local, regional, and apparently quite international. Fifth, we also learned that imperialism is still alive and well. Many will say whatever that means and try to uh, discard such comment.
I'm, I'm not stopping because I'm emotional. I just lost my way in my, in my reading. <laughs> but it means a lot, actually. 13 minutes, that's fine, that's good. Thank you. But it means a lot, especially if you don't push the argument too far. It means that the attempt by major international forces and their local allies to establish domination, if not hegemony, over a resource-rich region like the Middle East is central to unfolding events. How we make or ascertain these connections can be sloppy. The connections that some uh, make about conspiracy and imperialism. But ignoring them because the maximalist version is unappealing is an egregious not just sloppy mistake. For instance, not recognizing the deep interests that ultimately bind US policy to conservative oil-rich regimes in the region is one of these mistakes, despite the skirmishes we hear about today between Saudi Arabia and the United States, which will pass and everything will be fine in just a matter of a few weeks. And jettisoning the role of Israel and the role it plays in this regard simply because Israel is not officially in the middle of the current crisis is also a mistake because very much of what is happening is about Iran, Syria, Hezbollah on the one hand and Israel on the other. Six, the last learning moment I wish to share is again the Syrian, is that the Syrian regime was able to preserve even if already clobbered was able to persevere, sorry, even if already clobbered, by letting its opponents fall or fail into internal conflict on the one hand, and by having its people scared to hell of the alternative to the Syrian regime. So you have a very interesting situation where most Syrians are naturally not happy with or dislike or despise the Syrian regime, but are increasingly wary of any alternative, which means that they are sticking to what we call stasis, and stasis reinforces unintentionally the status quo, which means that the regime benefits. The players involved on the other side, notably the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, among others, are making it much easier for the Syrian regime not just to survive, but to ameliorate its image given the alternatives. Finally, we are still in a stalemate in Syria, one that started about a year into the uprising with two differences. The entrenchment of that stalemate that many of us talked about a year and a half ago, the entrenchment is much deeper and one can talk forever about why is it deeper. Second, it will take dramatic action to change the existing balance of power inside Syria. If the existing balance of power is claiming thousands of lives, injuries, and displacements per week today, such action, in other words, military intervention, for instance, would be even more devastating, especially in the short run. There is no clean solution to this ongoing tragedy. And there is no wavering as to who is responsible primarily for this tragedy, which is the Syrian regime. Everything that happens in Syria, all the atrocities that are committed on all sides, in my view, are the responsibility of the Syrian regime for letting it happen to begin with, even if the opposition and even if the parties aligned on the other side are equally problematic and are engaged in very problematic actions. This is primarily the responsibility of a regime that has not let go for several decades and could have had it otherwise. As unlikely as it is, only a political solution can benefit not just Syrians today, but Syrians tomorrow. Now it is a matter of finding out who really cares about Syrians to affect such an outcome. If we think for a moment that the American administration or Saudi Arabia or Qatar care about the Syrians in general, we are deluding ourselves because they would have done something different just like the regime could have many decades ago. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay, I have to uh, join Dr. Yaffe and remind everybody that I'm here on my personal account since U.S. administration policy comes into play. Of course, as one would expect, uh, and we're uh, certainly grateful for that. Thank you, Bassam. Um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. David Lesh. Uh, Dr. Lesh is a professor of Middle East history at Trinity University. He's author of uh, the fall of the House of Assad, the Arab-Israeli conflict, a history, and the new line of Damascus, Bashar al-Assad, and modern Syria. Uh, his talk is entitled Possible Ways Forward in Syria by Looking Back. I mean, this is a time for uh, retrospective uh, inquiry, uh, but based on, on uh, extensive research uh, that's, uh, that's been happening that he's been leading. Thank you very much, Dr. Lesh. Thank you, John, and uh, my thanks to the National Council, John Duke Anthony, my friend, for inviting me here. It's good to be, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I gave a, a talk on the, the situation in Syria, uh, I don't know, I think, I think it was earlier this year or last year, much smaller venue, and the person who introduced me said, it's so good to have a Syrian expert here. And I interrupted this person, and I said, uh, actually, you know, the Syria on which I'm a so-called expert no longer exists. And I said, there's a new Syria, and we're all learning about it, kind of the flip side of what Bassam said, uh, even you know, the experts, so-called experts who thought we knew something about Syria before March 2011, or, or we're all learning together about this new situation, ever-evolving situation after March 2011. And this is one of the problems in trying to come up with a solution is that there's so much that we, that we don't know. And it was what generated, uh, John alluded to some research I've been involved in, and um, it's, uh, uh, I developed and organized this project called the Harvard Nupi Trinity Syria Research Project, uh, sponsored by the Harvard Negotiation Project at Harvard, uh, Norwegian Institute for International Affairs in Oslo, and my own university, Trinity University. And uh, the idea behind this was to go around to all the parties that have a stake in the Syrian situation at the domestic, regional, international levels, and ask them basically similar sets of, of questions in order to get, uh, uh, you know, in order to make analysis of the comparison at a, a comparison basis, contrast all of these types of things, and. The, the, what's, you know, the, the rationale behind it is to, what I call, try to discover the conceptual paradigms of all of these different parties toward the conflict. Uh, because only when we understand how they all look at the conflict, how they all see the conflict, uh, can we begin to really analyze it in a coherent fashion and maybe craft some, some uh, uh, viable ways forward. And uh, I think we were very successful. We, we uh, interviewed internal opposition, many leaders of the internal opposition in Syria. Uh, we went to Damascus uh, uh, earlier in the year, meet with uh, regime officials, and of course uh, met with officials in most of the regional players and international players, with a few exceptions and some uh, important exceptions. And even though this is an ever-changing and evolving conflict, we think we were able to identify important aspects of it. Uh, and you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, in terms of this, this. Uh, a conceptual paradigm is a look at the Syrian regime itself and how they view the situation from the very beginning, quite different than what 
than what the rest of the world saw, or what much of the rest of the world saw. The nature of threat from the Syrian regime's perspective is much different than what is viewed outside of Syria. They saw this situation from the very beginning as, an, or important elements in the Syrian regime, saw this situation from the very beginning as an attack against them, as a continuation of an attack that began early on in Bashar al-Assad's uh, regime, and uh, particularly after the U.S.-led invasion in 2003 and, and the, uh, the aftermath of the assassination of Rafiq Kariri in 2005, and is behind what uh, they felt was needed to have been done to, at the very beginning. That is a harsh crackdown of what they saw as a much larger conspiracy. It doesn't matter whether I believe it, doesn't matter whether you believe or anyone else believes it. It matters that that's what important elements in the Syrian regime believed, and that's what influenced their reactions uh, in the beginning. Now, in this project, we did find a good bit of common ground amid all of the divergences, and it could form, in, you know, in my mind, could form the basis of developing common narratives between different groups, between elements of the opposition and the Syrian government, the Syrian regime, areas of convergence that could act as a foundation for dialogue if you start small. Particularly, you know, for instance, looking at the origins of the conflict, there was a lot of agreement between opposition elements of all types and the Syrian uh, uh, regime over the origins of the conflict, with some important exceptions, such as socioeconomic uh, difficulties and, and, uh, the, and particularly the influence of the so-called Arab Spring and, how, and the effect that had on uh, the, uh, the uprising in Syria itself. Another interesting uh, uh, convergence between important elements, though not all, certainly, uh, of the opposition and the Syrian regime was this idea of a transition which is embodied in the Geneva Communique, which itself is a flawed document, but there are some positive things in the Geneva Communique which is forming the basis of what we hope will be a Geneva process. And, uh, and again, this idea of a transition. Uh, again, if you, many of the convergences, if you dig just a little bit beyond that, you'll find quite wide divergences, particularly because there's uh, huge differences uh, on the nature of that transition, particularly of the role of uh, Bashar al-Assad, a role he should play, if any, uh, in the various sides. We started uh, with the belief uh, in this project that uh, there should be a Syrian solution for Syria. Everything we have found to date in this project, and I just compiled an 850-page report, so there's a lot of data. There's a much smaller version in executive summary that we've sent around. Uh, but everything we've seen to date uh, really reinforces this view of a Syrian solution for uh, Syria. And what we term an inside-out approach, or what, Judith, you mentioned separating the, the pieces. This is one element of separating the pieces. An inside-out approach rather than what has really been followed to date by the international community, and that is an outside-in approach. So what do I mean by this? An inside-out approach respects the inherent autonomy of the Syrian people to figure out this for themselves with an assist from outside parties, an important assist from outside parties, assisting, in other words, in the collective problem-solving process. What has been done for the most part to date is quite the opposite and has, in my view, considerably complicated things. Now, I don't want to get into all the mistakes by all the parties to the conflict that intensified, prolonged, and complicated the conflict, but some mentioned some of these. But we believe that there is, and particularly the wrong assumptions by many, many parties in the very beginning, just tremendously wrong assumptions. But we believe there must be much more foundational groundwork within an inside-out paradigm before we feed into, reinforce, or connect with an outside-in process such as a Geneva process. The Geneva meeting is an event. What we need is a process, and hopefully uh, 
the Geneva process, the Geneva event, a meeting that may or may not take place in late November or whenever, uh, initiates such a process. However, that tends to be quite politicized. Perhaps also we need a reorientation or a paradigm shift away from the usual terms of reference of negotiations. And let me suggest one. This isn't as way out as uh, perhaps it may sound at first. One of the things we found early on, particularly in very emotional meetings with many of the leaders of the internal opposition from inside Syria, those are fighting and dying on the ground, is uh, for why they, they uh, protested, why they took up arms, and why they're still fighting. And for them, it was the perceived, the perceived uh, assault on dignity, usually most dramatically in the form of torture and detention by Syrian government forces. So perhaps, you know, I'll shorten it here, but perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, 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 focusing on this idea of dignity and justice for all sides, not just the opposition, but also for Syrian government and its supporters might be one way to do this. Of course, the big question is how do we operationalize this and uh, uh, rather than go into that uh, now, I'll just say a few words that building on and expanding on the existing information that we have, learning uh, about this conflict and about the players involved, all of them, not just, not just uh, players that share our particular agendas or interests from the U.S. perspective, the Syrian government, the, uh, the FSA, the coalition, uh, other groups inside Syria, particularly the Islamic uh, alliance that was formed, uh, that uh, rejected Geneva, want uh, the imposition of Sharia. And again, just looking at that and, and dissecting that a little bit more, I mean, wanting Sharia is one thing. There are many different shades of Sharia. And in, and in many ways, and we've seen this in other places, wanting Sharia is not so much, you know, wanting the, imp the, the imposition of Islamic law in a strictest sense. It just means we don't want something imposed from the outside. Uh, some, I don't know, Judith, I think you said that, or, or Bassam. That's very much the case. We don't want a Western-imposed uh, uh, a solution to this. And so I think that uh, what would be needed is much more interest mapping, interest analysis, going into Syria, really meeting with all of these groups, all the parties involved, develop a range of options based on their responses, what they tell us, what they want, and what they see as their options, find the intersection between these groups, discuss other models that may have worked elsewhere, not to impose anything else but to learn from other models, because a, a inside-out solution is based on a Syrian model that, that, it, that uh, uh, revolves around their own uh, uh, customs and history and circumstances and so forth. I think uh, uh, last year, and I'll end with, with this, uh, last year uh, I, I stood here and, and I said something that uh, uh, was not received very well. <laughs> but uh, I said, as un unpalatable as it might seem, a year from now we must be ready to, uh, to accept that Assad is going to be in power for some time and that we will probably have to negotiate with him. Uh, and of course that has happened, and I'm not right very often, so that's why I'm putting that out. Uh, but let me, <laughs> let me uh, let me say something else now that uh, perhaps might not be well received and certainly I see it as, as unpalatable but it's the reality of the situation is that we may have to, to look at this uh, uh, in the long term. That we may have to look at temporary separation uh, between a regime state uh, and a non-regime states or states. Between a state that is non-political Islam and states that are political Islam. Uh, hoping to keep this somewhat, to keep communications back and forth and what has become a mutually destructive stalemate. I don't see much fluctuation uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the lines, they're not clean at all, but in the lines that currently exist 
the, in, the, uh, in the situation, but it may be 10 to 15 years before we can bring it back together again, if at all. This may be a permanent situation. After all, the nation state is a very new phenomenon, uh, especially in the Middle East. So uh, maybe this process is still working itself out, not only in Syria, uh, but elsewhere. And I think my last statement is, you know, does this thing have the, the you know, I, I constantly look at this, and does this thing have the lifespan of a, of a mosquito or a, an elephant? And I think most of the international community has been looking at this as, with a, hopefully, with a lifespan of a mosquito, because they want to stop the death and destruction, because they, they, of the humanitarian disaster. But I think as it has evolved, and now that it's two and a half years old, this has the life of, of an elephant, and we have to look at it uh, in those terms, which will require a great deal of patience and a great deal of commitment, which is usually in short supply in the international community, especially in the United States, as other things are attracted to the front page of the headlines. But hopefully there are groups out there and countries and organizations uh, that have the patience and commitment to do the necessary foundational groundwork that can then really add some substance to a Geneva process. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Lesh. Uh, our next speaker uh, is Dr. Michael Hudson. Uh, Dr. Hudson is, uh, in many ways, one of the deans of uh, academic study of political science of the Middle East in the United States, although he has now abandoned our fair shores and gone to Singapore. Uh, where he's director of the Middle East Institute and professor of political science for many years. He was a professor here at Georgetown University uh, and a very distinguished one at that. Uh, many publications, uh, of course, uh, to boot. Um, his, uh, his topic today is stateless, or his title is stateless in Beirut, waiting nervously for the next storm. Dr. Hudson. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Dr. Skander, and uh, special thanks to uh, my friend uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony and the National Council for the invitation to uh, uh, say a few words about Lebanon. My assignment on this panel is to talk a little bit about uh, the small uh, neighbor to the west of Syria. Um, and before I start, uh, I would like to observe that uh, today is the 30th anniversary of the bombing at the Beirut International Airport that uh, killed 241 U.S. Marines who were in Lebanon as part of an international uh, peacekeeping force. Now, like a boat with no rudder in rough seas, Lebanon is at the mercy of multiple dangers, the socioeconomic pressures from a huge Syrian refugee influx, the threat of, quote, jihadis versus uh, Hezbollah, the dynamics of regional polarization, the lack of a foreign protector, the economic burdens of chronic instability, chronic and growing instability perhaps, and unending elite bickering. The result is a paralysis of leadership with no end in sight, and it seems paradoxical then, in light of all this, that 
compared to several of the neighbors, Lebanon, Lebanon is not doing so badly. Now, uh, when I was a graduate student going out to Lebanon for the first time in the 1960s, uh, I was befriended by a very distinguished Lebanese political scientist by the name of uh, Dr. Hassan Saab. And uh, Dr. Hassan Saab liked to say about Lebanon that Lebanon had given three gifts to civilization. The alphabet, purple dye, and a state without government. And I've just come back from the annual meeting of the Middle East Studies Association in New Orleans, and I was asked to chair a panel called Wayne Daula, Where is the state in Lebanon? And it was an interesting discussion of where the state is and where the state uh, isn't. Um, now, where is the state? Where is the leadership? Government seems to be shut down. There's a paralysis of institute. Oh, I'm sorry, I wanted to talk about Lebanon. Uh, <coughs> Lebanon, as, a, as a, uh, a, a little country that is acted upon, is in a particularly serious uh, environment at the moment. And if I were to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being sort of equivalent of the situation that led to the beginning of the long civil war in 1975, I would say we're at about a 7 right now. And things are not necessarily getting any better. So what, what exactly uh, are these challenges and problems that beset this uh, state without much in the way of government. Well, if we look at the political impasse, we can look at the local dimension, which is characterized uh, by the uh, ongoing struggle between the coalition called uh, March 14th, the Hariri coalition, uh, versus the other coalition called March 8th, these are named for famous demonstrations that occurred, as you will remember, which, uh, in which Hezbollah is the principal, but not the only uh, member. Um, we may also think of, uh, on the local side, a, a, a deeper and maybe a potentially more violent struggle between armed elements, uh, Hezbollah as a militia, not just a political party, and uh, what are loosely called uh, jihadi groups, uh, uh, particularly in the northern part of the country. And then there's a tr what we might call a cultural dimension or a trans-regional religious dimension, I regret to say, which uh, is, a, uh, which is the uh, newly constructed uh, deep hostility between Sunnis and Shia across the region. And of course that, uh, that aggravates the demographic, ethnic, sectarian balance and, and issues in Lebanon itself. And then there's a, a regional dimension, a regional uh, international dimension, in which we have uh, a polarity between a uh, faction, with a, an axis really, of Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, March 8th axis, versus 
the March 14th axis, the Hariri axis, the Saudi-supported, and in some ways the Israeli-supported uh, uh, axis on the other side. And then beyond that, Lebanon is not immune to the broader international polarity, which uh, of course pits now the United States and the West, broadly speaking, which has enjoyed a, a certain kind of dominion, hegemony over the region, including Lebanon for a long time, challenged by what they call the, the resistance axis, the Iran, Syria, uh, uh, sorry, the, the, uh, the, Europe, the, the, the Russia, uh, Chinese axis. And that's a larger struggle over a longer period of time. Let me say a few words about the humanitarian and the economic uh, consequences of Syria for Lebanon. And I'll just throw out a few statistics that have been compiled at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies and the World Bank, uh, just to remind you of how this small country of about four million people is being swamped by the fallout from Syria. We have registered Syrian refugees registered in Lebanon over 700,000. Unregistered Syrian refugees in Lebanon are estimated at about 243,000. Maybe it's about a million Syrians in Lebanon that wouldn't have been there except for the uh, catastrophe that's going on next door. The government of Lebanon is restricting registration of Syrian children in Lebanese public schools for lack of capacity. There will be 90,000 Syrian kids in Lebanese schools this year, which increases the whole capacity of the system by 30 percent. Uh, the UNHCR is very concerned about uh, what is going to be happening to these kids and their families uh, as the winter comes on in Lebanon, because unlike some of the other neighboring countries, Lebanon does not have a, a formal program of refugee camps and, and resettlement. It's all done in the typical sort of ad hoc Lebanese way. The economic consequences of Syria for Lebanon are also very serious. The World Bank estimates that by the end of next year, 2014, GDP will have declined by 2.9% each year. There will be, by the end of next year, 170,000 people estimated will have been pushed into poverty, and currently about 1 million Lebanese live below the poverty line. They expect the unemployment rate will double to 20%, and even more so among the youth. Government revenues will decrease by $1.5 billion, and government spending will have to increase, they think, by about $1.1 billion. Uh, it's kind of daunting. So, that brings us to the question again, where is the state? Where is the leadership? And we have here, of course, in, in Lebanon, uh, what academics call a consociational democracy. That is to say, uh, a kind of a pluralistic uh, uh, democracy in which major parties have a kind of an effective veto over decision making. In addition, now in Lebanon, you, have, you do not have a strong president. Uh, you do not have a firmly seated prime minister. Mr. Matati is a caretaker. With the, the next man in line, Taman Salam, is waiting patiently, uh, and he'll have to wait a bit longer. There's no powerful army. Uh, 
Right now, Nabih Berri and the March 14th group can't agree even to convene a parliamentary session. Clashes continue in Tripoli. Samir Jaja was quoted just yesterday uh, uh, saying that the Lebanese will take up arms if Hezbollah tries to change the system. So it's not a pretty picture. But let me ask finally, is this weak, paralyzed government actually a blessing in disguise? Lebanese used to argue that the strength of Lebanon lay in its weakness. Other people would let it alone. Lebanese can't harm anybody. Why should, you know, Lebanon doesn't need to be like an ordinary state in a kind of a real politique Hobbesian world. But that didn't work. It worked for a while, but it didn't work finally when domestic, social, and economic, and then regional crises converged as happened in a small way in 1958 in the brief civil war and then of course in a big way in 1975 triggering a war or a series of wars that lasted until 1990. So far now it seems to be working and presumably the leadership of March 14th and March 8th really don't want to see a civil war Lebanon hasn't had an Arab Spring, mainly because popular expectations about government are so low. <laughs> and maybe that explains the paradox. But beware, the convergence of domestic pressures, which I've tried to describe, and regional chaos, which I've tried to describe, does remind you a bit of early 1975. Only the players are different. And the United States is not going to bail out Lebanon, uh, as we know all too well. So for Lebanon, precariousness is a condition, but is it really a security strategy? And that's the question that I leave you with. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Hudson. Uh, another optimistic ending uh, and, and really uh, thought-provoking of course uh, for us. We're going to move to our last uh, talk before we open up for questions and answers. Dr. Trita Parsi uh, who will be speaking to us on how U.S.-Iranian talks uh, might impact and perhaps help the Syrian situation. Dr. Parsi is the founder and president of the National Iranian American Council author of Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States, and more recently, A Single Role of the Dice, Obama's Diplomacy with Iran, uh, and much uh, quoted uh, these days as we're talking about precisely these issues. Thank you very much, Dr. Trita Parsi. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure being here. Um, a lot of depressing talks. I always use, usually give the most depressing talks at these conferences because I usually talk about Iran. But ironically, Iran seems to be the lowest hanging fruit for the United States in the region right now compared to all of the other conflicts. But let me give a talk that actually tries to take a couple of steps back and look at it primarily first from a geopolitical perspective. We had a conference last week and Gian Domenico Pico, the former Undersecretary General of the UN, um, made the point that what we're seeing in Syria right now is the third chess game being played between Saudi Arabia and Iran. 
The first one being in Afghanistan, the second one in Iraq, and now we're on to the third one. Fundamentally, a geopolitical rivalry that has roots that goes far deeper than the Islamic Revolution um, or any recent current configurations on either side. At the same time, we're having the Israeli-Iranian rivalry, also in my view, geopolitically rooted, reaching its climax right now. Again, a competition for influence and uh, power within the region, and I think what is becoming increasingly clear is that while Iran does present a significant amount of challenges, while its regime certainly has uh, a horrific human rights record and a record of repression at home, while it has been a supporter of asymmetric uh, violence in the region, what this ultimately is about is not whether Iran would get a nuclear bomb or whether it would use a nuclear bomb, but what the future configuration and order of the region will look like if Iran is coming in from the cold, if it is being given a seat at the table, which I think increasingly is being something that the, those who, particularly Saudi Arabia and Israel, may be fearing right now because they think it would come at the expense of their own seat or at least the room of maneuver that they have at the current seat at the regional table. The underlying factor of all of this is also then the fact that the United States has been in relative decline in the region post-invasion of Iraq, which then has made it too difficult to sustain the old order in the region. The old order is collapsing. And that means that those who have benefited from that old order are also quite worried about what the new order will look like. Will they lose some of the privileges that they're currently enjoying? The United States is not in a position to try to sustain the old order. It is not in a position to try to keep its footprint in the region in the manner that it was in the last 10 years. This is not necessarily a complete uh, abandonment of the region, but it's not going to be the way it was before. It simply does not have the power to do so. Even in states in it which it does have a tremendous amount of leverage and influence, it cannot determine the outcome of political fights. All of this is then leading to a situation in which the United States is finding itself increasingly at odds with Saudi Arabia and Israel, because these are two states who would like to recreate the balance of power in the region as it existed pre-2003. And the United States is not in a position to be able to play that game any longer. Now, while Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan are these chess games, and they're all very important, I think many would view the real, true, final game changer to be if, in top, on top of all of this, suddenly there would be a deal between the United States and Iran. A deal that would put an end to at least a large part of the enmity that has existed between the two countries for the better part of the last 30 years. And it would be viewed by many in the region as the ultimate sign that the U.S. truly is abandoning irreversibly the old order in the region. Because the old order was based on the idea that the United States would create security and stability in the region by excluding Iran from all 
legitimate avenues of influence, keeping it outside of the political and economic structures of the region. If there suddenly is a deal, if not an rapprochement, at least a thaw in ties, I think it would be viewed by many as something that um, would truly put the final nail in the coffin that we are entering a new era in which the old order is no longer going to be resurrected. But is the fear, however, of Saudi Arabia, Israel, and perhaps others in the region justified, believing that if there is such a thaw in relations between the United States and Iran, that it would mean a, a very negative development of the trajectory of their power and their position in the region. I think this is actually mistaken for a very simple reason. If there is a deal between the United States and Iran on the nuclear issue, there certainly would be a thaw. There would certainly be a reduction of tensions. But we're not talking about a U.S.-Iran partnership in the region. Because neither the Iranians nor the United States is seeking such a partnership. From the perspective of the Iranians, the hardliners in Tehran who are on the defensive but are not counted out are very clear. They believe, both for ideological reasons as well as for geopolitical reasons, that a partnership with the United States in this region would be a long-term strategic negative for Tehran because of their view of the lack of legitimacy of the U.S. in the region, uh, of their view that the U.S.'s ability to sustain itself in the region is limited, and as a result, they prefer to keep a healthy distance from the United States, even if they would engage in tactical and perhaps strategic collaboration in specific areas on specific issues. But partnership is not something that they're looking for. And I would say that from the American perspective, it's very difficult to see the United States <coughs> moving towards partnership with Iran as long as it is governed by the Islamic Republic. In fact, take a look at what Hassan Rouhani said during his UN address. I think there was a specific line there that made it very clear the limits of the U.S.-Iran rapprochement, in which he said that there should be a, a mechanism to manage the conflict between the United States and Iran. Manage the conflict, not end the conflict, not create a partnership. Recognize that the conflict will still be there, but there should be managed in such a way so that it does not lead to an all-out war or something that would end up being too costly for either or for both sides. I would call it that they're looking for a codified rivalry. They will continue to be the number one critic of the United States in the region while collaborating with the United States in many different areas in the region when there are common interests. But they're not seeking to replace Saudi Arabia or Israel in this equation. Now, I would say that in spite of the very intense animosity, enmity, opposition to the potential breakthrough in talks between the United States and Iran that we're seeing both from Saudi Arabia and Israel right now, I think it would be quite a mistake for the United States not to pursue this. Not just, as we mentioned, that Iran, compared to um, the situation in Syria, or in Iraq, or in Afghanistan, or in Egypt, actually is not an easy problem, but it has far greater promise of a solution now compared to these issues than we've seen before. At the end of the day, this is also going to be about Obama's legacy. Because whether the president likes it or not, 
His legacy is going to be very much determined by what happens on Iran. No deal is going to be a big negative spot on his future legacy. It's not such that if there isn't a deal, everyone will forget about this issue. The only options he has is to actually get a solution to this issue and actually have that as part of his positive leg legacy or to continue on the path that has existed for the last couple of years in which the effort has been to believe that by just sanctioning and pressuring Iran, that would automatically lead to some sort of a solution. I don't believe that that's the case. The reason why there is an opening right now is for a couple of factors, but I would say the two most important factors are there's a team in Iran that for quite some time has been pursuing a very different approach to the United States. This is the team that in 2001 collaborated with the United States in Afghanistan and helped create a new constitution there. Same team that in 2003 put forward a uh, comprehensive proposal for negotiations. In 2005, put forward a proposal to cap all enrichment to no more than 3,000 centrifuges. All of this before any of the sanctions that have existed now. Their ability to strike this deal is limited because of the political landscape in Iran, probably no longer of a window of six or so months. If that is lost, and it's of course depending on what the Iranians do as well, then Obama's legacy on Iran is going to be that over the last eight years, Iran continued to move closer and closer to nuclear weapons capability in spite of all of the sanctions and economic pressures that it endured. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Parsi. Um, so we're, uh, we have a little over 15 minutes for questions. Um, the questions fall into a couple of different categories. I'd like to start perhaps with one that comes up in a couple of different ways, which has to do, and I'll, I'll address this to, to all of you because I think everyone is touching on this in various ways because, uh, for instance, Dr. Hudson, you said uh, the U.S. can't bail Lebanon out or won't bail uh, Lebanon out. Uh, Dr. Yaffe, you uh, talked about a new quartet uh, and, and so on. Thinking about uh, international configurations, I guess, then would be one of the the ways to ask the question if um, if we're per perceiving on this panel if if one of the things that seems to be coming out is that we have these major challenges and that the current the status quo is not one that uh, can handle those challenges as effectively as it once was. This seems to be something that people are saying on this panel. Then how what about the role of other international players in partnership? with the U.S. And, and other major players, so of course the Russians, the Chinese, et cetera, as well as the local uh, major players within the region. How do you all see this moving forward? Is this a moment then of, uh, of shifting alliances and axes in our region uh, that, that pretends a, a future set of alliances? Start with that. Uh, shall we go through and just have uh, uh, anybody can answer this. Do you want to start, uh, Dr. Hudson, and we'll go from there? Yes, uh, is this on? Uh, well, I think what several of us are talking about is uh, the rise of a more uh, multipolar world, which suggests that no nobody, and that means the United States especially, has the power to uh, produce uh, uh, ideal solutions. 
And so what you're seeing, I think, uh, is, a, is a very difficult choice for Washington because as the previous, uh, having dominated the region for so long, the idea of having to accommodate the return of Russia back to the days of the old Cold War uh, to admit that uh, China is not far behind, uh, these are difficult things to contemplate. But uh, it may be that uh, that this um, this new multipolar world um, uh, might turn out to be not so bad. I'll leave it at that. Um, is, this, is this on? Okay. Uh, I think yeah, I'll just focus on on Syria. One of the problems is uh, you know, we made a, a a dreadful wrong assumption at the beginning, of course, that Assad was going to fall, and there were many lines uh, drawn, red and, and otherwise, that of course have, have uh, not proved to be true or have been crossed without, uh, uh, without uh, repercussions. And it's difficult to come back from that from a U.S. perspective with regard to trying to engineer a political settlement because of the time wasted, because of the enmity on, on uh, uh, the Syrian government, Iranian Hezbollah, the, the, that uh, side of the equation uh, from uh, uh, toward uh, uh, the opposition in the U.S. because of the expectations that the opposition had and the feeling of betrayal that they have uh, right now with uh, regard to the U.S. in, in particular. Uh, so it will perforce uh, take uh, a, a multi-country uh, effort to resolve the situation. That's why there's some hope uh, that the U.S.-Russian agreement on the chemical weapons, the removal of chemical weapons, uh, may have uh, empowered diplomacy, uh, particularly as I think the U.S., as the situation evolved in Syria, has, has learned that it, uh, it will need uh, the Russians, and, and of course uh, Putin is loving that, uh, and uh, will have to negotiate uh, at some level, as already has, with uh, the Syrian regime. So uh, on, on the one hand, the U.S., I think, sort of abstention from direct involvement in Syria in the beginning allowed this multipolarity within the framework of, of the Syrian situation to develop, which was actually complicated things. That opportunity was lost, but now it will have to be resolved within this framework, which is terribly, terribly difficult. Uh, I'd like to second uh, Dr. Michael Hudson. Dr. Michael Hudson was my advisor. I, I still can't call him Michael. Um, <clears throat> Go ahead. Mike. Okay. <laughs> um, I would like to second the comment about uh, the fact that it's actually not a bad thing that we're moving from a unipolar to a multipolar, not bipolar, as in the Cold, Cold War era, uh, largely because of two things. There will be, of course, as we all know, there will be a multiplicity of actors that might actually uh, allow for a balancing, a more balanced game. Just like with dictatorships that are disrupted by multiple uh, centers of power, even of those centers of power, are problematic. I mean, look at American democracy. The centers of power early on were sexist, racist, and classists, classists, but they were actually balancing each other, and that allowed for franchise to develop over 200 years until we reached a, a better point. And I think that will also be the case in a multipolar world, world even if you know actors that people in this room uh, don't like are part of this uh, multipolar world, world. So strategically, I think it's a better thing. But there's also 
one more thing, and that, and that is some of the tools in the future of this new uh, balancing uh, outcome or balancing game uh, are going to play a role that have that they haven't played in the past as much, and that is the cliche again, the cliche or the naive sounding uh, phrase, people power. The especially in areas where mass mobilization has occurred, such as Egypt, whether or not we like what is going on right now or whether we're disappointed, there is something to say about how it is very difficult for any party, any political actor in the world, state or otherwise, to ignore people power, whether it's the United States or elsewhere, and definitely in the region. And I would also say that uh, even in the countries that seem to have enjoyed some stability in the region are likely also to face a new form of popular mobilization within this kind of um, uh, new balancing uh, world order uh, or new uh, balance of power in, in, in this upcoming world order. But not to worry, it's not going to happen right away. You have five to ten years of some stability and I think then it will be a, a different kind of a situation, which means it's advisable for people in power and a lot of people in this room either are friends with or represent or support power centers worldwide. It's really important for uh, us to rethink uh, basically moving forward because the, the era of the Cold War or the immediate post-Cold War period I think is behind us and there's a new dynamic uh, coming up. I have a confession to make. I don't know what multipolar means anymore. I think I knew what it meant in the Cold War. I knew what it meant in the 1990s, but I don't know what it means, and I certainly don't know what it means in the context of the Middle East. It seems to me that, uh, in part, the United States has had a role because, well, because nobody else wanted to, but the but, and it was expected, and you're the richest, and you're the sole superpower. Well, that was kind of a myth that, that only some people really ever believed in. But the point is, nobody wants to take the responsibility for resolving anything in the Middle East. Nobody wants to play a role as, as the protector, the defender. Nobody wants to make the investment in time or money or uh, potentially military commitments, security commitments. Uh, that could involve boots on the ground or whatever you want to describe it. Nobody wants, for example, to take up a role that we've played in securing open seas and uh, open access and passage of oil tankers and trade and all that. Everyone wants the trade, everyone wants the oil, but nobody wants the responsibility. And nobody wants to get involved in the internal internal issues of other countries. And if you find a way that you can have uh, a multipolar acceptance and you've got countries with such strong opposition uh, between what Russia and China believe is the uh, things that should never be attempted and the way the West and many of the peoples in the countries themselves demand uh, intervention and attention, I just don't see it. But we have, we've done it and we've done it, I think, you know, what, we're, what we're, I'm hearing and we've done it too long. But there's opposition from our, I don't know who the people are the people in the United States, the people anywhere. There's no support for it and there's no reward for it. Nobody wants to take the blame if you do something and the blame if it goes wrong. So I think that's, that's where I would stand. Thank you. Um, so Thank you. Um, the, another sort of broad question I would say, there are lots of specific questions, but one question that has been um, 
at various levels discussed in our talks, but is brought up explicitly in one of our questions is, in effect, if um, as the U.S. begins uh, some kind of potential rapprochement with, or, or at least these negotiations with the Iranians, uh, how does this impact the relations? How can the U.S. manage its existing relationships with its important regional allies? And this is something that obviously uh, Trita has spoken of and, and is there in, in the variety of talks. But I'd like to ask you all to uh, address this as specifically as possible. Um, and we'll start with, with Dr. Parsi on this. But the question then is, as this change, uh, if, it, if there were to be uh, some kind of transformation in the relationship with Iran, then what does this mean for the U.S. relationship with its traditional allies? Can those be maintained, those relationships, more or less as they are, but adjusted, or what's the long-term uh, result of this, medium and long-term? Look, bottom line is they're going to be okay. This is not going to be, you know, the end of uh, friendship with the United States in any shape or form. Um, there is a natural resistance to change of this nature that is going to potentially be transformative. Uh, there's going to be a need for a tremendous amount of hand-holding, but I also think uh, more of an adult conversation. I, I don't think it is warranted for the United States to be too shy about the fact that any effort by allies of the United States to sabotage what could be something that would strongly enhance U.S. national security and interests should not be looked upon lightly. Uh, but at the same time, with the, the guarantees, of course, that uh, even though the old order and some of the old arrangements may not be able to be resurrected, that doesn't mean that there's an end um, to, to these relationships or that these countries would be put in a, in a very vulnerable position. I think, personally, uh, Israel ultimately will benefit from a deal of this nature, even though, of course, from the Israeli perspective, there's a preference to not have any enrichment on Iranian soil and then a preference to sustain the status quo rather than having to deal with uh, a scenario in which the U.S. is not automatically on the Israeli side on every potential point of conflict with Iran. At the end of the day, the Iranians know very well, I think the U.S. knows very well, and I frankly think you know, the Israelis know very well. The Iranians cannot improve their relationship with the United States without also shifting their position on Israel. Um, it may not be part of the text of any agreement, but it's going to come. Uh, similarly, the Saudis uh, have their own conversation with the Iranians. Uh, they have their own diplomacy. The Israelis do not. Um, there are ways to be able to handle this. What I think has been extremely problematic is that in the last couple of years, this rivalry has been fueled uh, much more than it has been before. It has a much clearer, stronger, and unfortunately more receptive sectarian um, uh, dimension to it, which may end up being unstoppable if something is not done quickly, because it may take on a life of its own. And that would be to the detriment of everyone uh, in the region. And no one would be immune to the fire that would sweep through the region as a result of this. Anybody else want to address this at all? Um, I, I think if we if we just go off of that, we'll, ha we'll take one last uh, question and address it to anybody who would who would like to um, take this on. But but Trita just came back to this question of sectarianism, which is obviously something that we're finding uh, increasingly problematic in our region, uh, and not something that <coughs> when doctors Yaffe and Hudson first started their careers, they would have imagined would be. Uh, something we'd be talking about, I think, in the year 2013 to nearly this extent. And so 
looking at that, I, I think this is one of the, 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 the puzzles and, and one of the questions for the future based on this moment of where we are in terms of this geopolitical rivalry, in terms of what's happening in Syria, in terms of the, the conflict uh, over primacy in the Persian Gulf. What do, what do you all see, and, and in particular as the, the sectarianism of the Syrian uh, conflict gets uh, ramped up and increased, um, do you all see this as being something that we will live with as we have lived with the aftermath of the Afghan war now for all of these decades? Is this something then that we're going to inev almost inevitably have to live with or is this something that can be managed uh, more effectively um, at the present? Uh, start with, uh, I think, Dr. Lesh, you, you had mentioned also this question of culture and sectarianism. I, we'll start with you and any, and any last comments that you would, any of you would like to sure. make as we wrap up. Just a, a real quick comment on that. Uh, first of all, I mean, no one knows uh, for sure. Uh, it is quite complicated and we're all trying to understand the, this, the new evolution of all of these forces that are arising and and uh, what may be a, a new Middle East in, in, in many ways. Uh, and one thing regarding sectarian conflict is, is that uh, obviously there have been, uh, what we're talking about, primarily the divide between Sunni Islam and, and Shia uh, Islam. And uh, someone mentioned to me that uh, uh, what may be seeing is the reactivation of that after a, a respite, uh, relatively speaking, of, of uh, you know, that the, in which the nation state system uh, basically uh, uh, inserted itself into what had been uh, the history of the Middle East prior to, to the early 1900s. So, uh, you know, that's something we, we need to, to, uh, to look at. We, that's something we need to reevaluate uh, as these alliances are, are shifting and, and, and project themselves uh, or are being created uh, inside countries such as Syria. Well, I think academics uh, who follow the region now feel that uh, sectarianism is a phenomenon that is not primordial or embedded in people's genes. Uh, it is under certain historical circumstances and contingencies uh, constructed, amplified, and something that can be constructed can also be deconstructed. And one would think that uh, responsible powers both in the region and outside ought to be working very hard to deconstruct the kind of sectarian uh, infection in a way that is spread across the region. Because remember, uh, this is indeed a region in flux. We may be talking in our part of the world that's addressed on this panel in a, of a kind of a post-Sykes-Picot um, world emerging, but with the rise of, uh, as Bassam was mentioning, of, of populist uh, sentiments and so forth, there is in a sense a falling away of the traditional kinds of forms of control, legitimacy, rules of the game, and so on. And that means, I think, that uh, the, the, the powers that, that can play a big role in this, and it's not just the United States anymore, need to play it very carefully. There is less room for making mistakes, and I think it's quite inexcusable for uh, countries either in the region or outside to be uh, uh, promoting uh, extremist uh, game changers because in this Middle East, everything is related to everything else. I think the problem is uh, sectarianism, yeah. Uh, we can't demand it. We can't demand that everyone treats the citizens of their country the, the way we 
uh, at least in theory, do in our own country. And it's taken us a long time, remember, to get to where we are today, including a belief in constitutionalism and the rule of law. Now, it seems to me that if you look realistically at the region, sectarianism is used by regimes to maintain themselves in power, and it's used by opposition and those who are out of power who want it. So it's a question of power. It's not so much always who you are, but how you use it to get the power and control you want. Uh, and if you look at Iraq as an example, surely most Iraqis know that if you want to get to national reconciliation, you have to find a way to share the power, yet who would want to? When you haven't had it, and you have it now, uh, why would you want to? You want to construct things which protect it. So um, I don't think we know really, at, at least from the outside, that you're one, we, we are able to really get in to change that. But it has to change. Uh, yes, I, I just want to say, uh, reiterate some of what has been said and emphasize the idea that uh, sectarianism is a political identity. Sect, sect can be a political identity, and this is basically the most uh, extant and effective uh, dimension of sectarianism, which means it was formed and it can actually, as uh, Mike said, it can go away and be de deconstructed. Um, but there is a reason why these things happen and why these things go away. There's a reason why uh, Protestant Catholic wars stopped. And it's important to, to not assume that we are all on the same page. Some people start from this endemic approach that this is not going to stop and it's very difficult to actually get anywhere in that kind of conversation. But there are issues and policies that have exacerbated sectarianism. And one way to start fighting that as far as we are concerned, sitting here in the belly of the belly of, you know, of, of the most powerful nation in history, not just on earth, is to, for instance, stop propping up dictatorships like Saddam Hussein in the 1980s that actually exacerbated sectarian tensions. And now to also try to stop propping up other dictatorships that are not contributing to any kind of resolution of this tension because the problem is not sectarianism, it's elsewhere. Thanks to all of you and please join me in thanking our illustrious committee. <laughs>